You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses and an incredibly supportive writing community. In this in-between episode, I'm without my wonderful co-host, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of her latest book, which is The Wolf's Howl, another fantastic book in the Maven and Reeve series. In this episode, I chat with Sam Buckerfield, who has co-written a book called Generation Alpha, Understanding Our Children and Helping Them Thrive. Now, What's interesting is that this is a non-fiction book, but Sam's passion has always been in fiction. But as you'll hear, he was able to use his fiction skills to create a compelling and very readable narrative out of 20 years of social research and case studies and statistics and, oh my goodness, the research. (laughs) I love this interview because Sam really proves that storytelling is an important skill, you know, whether you're writing fiction or non-fiction or even reports and emails. So here is my conversation with Sam Buckerfield. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sam. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Now, congratulations on your book, which you have co-authored with Mark McCrindle and Ashley Feld. It's called Generation Alpha, Understanding Our Children and Helping Them Thrive. And I'm particularly excited about talking to you about this because I'm a big fan of nonfiction and I think it's quite a skill to write a nonfiction book. So, first of all, well done. <laughs> second, <laughs> second, for those who haven't uh, read the book yet or got their hands on a copy, can you tell listeners what it's about? Yes, sure. So, Generation Alpha are children born in 2010 to 2024. And the term Generation Alpha itself was coined by Mark McCrindle, who's the principal of a social research agency called McCrindle. And basically, within this book, we sort of project uh, what the future is going to look like for Generation Alpha. And it's uh, targeted at parents, uh, educators, caregivers, and um, managers and leaders in the workplace to basically resource them um, into how they can most effectively lead this generation. Um, So they'll be facing lots of um, change um, at the fastest rate ever. And so we look at community, the future of community, uh, future of education, technology, the future consumer, as well as um, looking at different parenting techniques that can empower um, caregivers to, um, you know, understand their children in order to help them thrive. Now, the thing is, when you first came to the Australian Writers' Centre and you've done a bunch of our courses, your main interest was writing fiction and you are, you know, writing novels and stories and fictional um, uh, pieces of work. So how did you get involved with writing a non-fiction book about this age group? (laughs) (laughs) It's a good question, which I ask myself regularly. Um, Mm -hmm. And actually, well, it came through um, a friend. So at the time, um, I was working with a psychologist because he was wanting to um, turn his learnings and his his sort of uh, methodology into a novel that would help people through story. And I'd mentioned this to a friend, and it just so happened uh, that he worked for Mark McCrindle and said, well, Mark's thinking about writing a book. Would you like to come and meet him? And then he can pitch the idea to you. 
So I went along to this uh, meeting and I was quite compelled by what um, Mark was saying about Generation Alpha and um, thought this would be an exciting project to be a part of. But I, I have to say, I made it very clear that um, all the courses I'd done with Australian Writers' Centre were fiction, and that was my passion, and that's what I was pursuing, and, and said, I'm not an academic writer, is that okay? And that's exactly why they wanted me on board, because they wanted me to help tell the story um, yes. and also really looking at the structure and flow of the book um, so that it was really accessible to the everyday reader. Um, so that's actually, it, that's how I got involved and I didn't expect it would kind of take that turn but it's been amazing to be a part of certainly. Wonderful. Now when you're writing something like this because obviously you had no background in in this field, um, but it's uh, Mark McCrindle's expertise. What did you, first of all, why did you find the topic compelling? And second, like when you're faced with, hey, write this giant book on this very broad topic, what did you do in the very first instance, like to think, where am I going to start? Yeah, I mean, I th the reason I was compelled to get involved was um, because Mark has a very optimistic view of the future. And all of everything that I read on the future of technology and, and was was really fear based. And, mm. and I thought, what an incredible opportunity to be a part of changing that narrative um, and having an optimistic view that actually, yes, there's lots of change ahead, but past generations have come through significant challenges and have managed to still be standing and not just standing but thriving and, and flourishing so he presented it in that way where I was like I, I can't not be a part of this mm. and then um in terms of the process um I mean I mean immediately I was overwhelmed yes um, <laughs> anyone would be anyone would be yeah I just I was and I had, a, you know, like with any writer, you just have your moment, like your meltdown moments sort of to yourself. <laughs> and I, I'd share my moments with my friends. And but I I committed to tell the story um, in order to um, equip everyone as, as best I could with the research that Mark and Ashley did um, to help them and, and to help people see that um, see the future with a positive outlook. And so like practically what that meant is I interviewed Mark um, sort of once every three weeks for about six or seven months on the different wow. topics that he wanted to cover. Mm. And he I think it would be reasonable to say that he operates at a genius level. <laughs> and so he was just spouting off all of these statistics, all mm. of these fantastic illustrations, um, and really immersed me in, in the world of social research. And from that, I went away. So I recorded, I recorded our interviews and I went home, listened to them over and over. And then I researched, um, desktop research, everything that he talked about. And from that, I found additional reports that um, really affirmed his view. Um, and um, from and I had to learn what the respectable sources were as well, um, who, who we cite throughout the book. So it really was, do you know what? It's like eating an elephant. Um, <laughs> you just it's one chunk at a time. Mm. Um, and that and when I saw that when I saw that actually if I could take it one chunk at a time it felt um, 
possible. Whereas when I thought about the book as a whole, it really did feel impossible. So at what point, because, for example, if you were writing a nonfiction book for or with someone who it's, here's how I walked across the Nullarbor, it's a very clear narrative arc. You start on one end of Australia and you keep on walking, you get to the <laughs> other end, right? But when you have a broad topic such as this, um, I know that you said you interviewed Mark every three weeks for about six months, but the danger when you're dealing with somebody who is so knowledgeable, has done so much research over the course of 20 years, or I think that's about how long he's been around. Um, and I've interviewed Mark before and he does spout off, you know, things that be- because he, he just knows them so intimately. The danger mm-hmm. with that is that you've got so many disparate things. At what point were you able to decide this is going to be the order of the chapters or this is the way I'm going to tell this story? Wow, that's a big question. I mm. think um, we 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 kind of mapped out chronologically, okay? So we started off... Um, giving an overview of each of the generations, then um, talked about why Generation Alpha have been given that term. And then we looked at um, the life experiences that Gen Alpha would have um, growing up. So that kind of gave it a very natural order. Mm. um, and, And really, in order to build on the things that he shared with me and his insights, that's when I started to say, I think we need to interview this type of person because I think they're going to add another dimension. So we we spoke with child psychologists, we spoke mm-hmm. with various teachers and educators, social media influencers, um, film and television producers, and technology experts to get a very, a, a well-rounded view so that we weren't kind of getting stuck. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Is it was it was a challenge? I have to say. Mm-mm-mm. So I mean, it sounds like you did it very logically, which which makes sense. So then, but then it comes down to just harking back to the fact that Mark had, would have done so much research over the course of his career, and would be able to pull on so many different examples, reports, that sort of thing. Did you include them all, or did you have? How did you determine what to include and what to leave out? This was a huge learning process for me mm. because this was the first time I was exposed to social research at that level. And I've I've sort of joked to people and actually Mark said to me, he's like, you know, this is like writing two PhDs. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, it is. I feel that in my bones. Yes. Um Really, what what it came down to is is that I did a lot of desktop research and I found various papers that affirmed what Mark was saying. Um, now, because um, you know it, it's his job and his company's job to do to do the research, what they often do is they pull um, different insights together, which informs research that they do as well. Mm-hmm. So it kind of became a bit of a jigsaw um, in terms of piecing different. Um, different viewpoints on um, the same topic in order to come up with something that's that's robust um and then really i mean yeah 
it's such a I'm finding this one really hard to answer um, because it, it was it was different with with each which each thing. So, for example, with community, the future of community and the future of housing, um, Mark had a lot of stuff on demographics and that's all available as well through um, the Australian uh, Bureau of Statistics. So yeah. we use that. But I had um, a contact with someone who is a property strategist. And so I interviewed him and he gave me more insight into future developments, um, particularly in Queensland, which is which is featured in the book. And from that, I just went on lots of council websites um, to see what they were planning for the next 10 to 20 years. Um, and um, and then let Mark know. And he's like, that's that's completely in line with what we're seeing as well um, in the various trends. So it, it was very convoluted and quite complex, but I feel, and I really, I see it like a part of my role was to really simplify it and make the information accessible so it was easy to understand. Yes, yes. And now you said that you've interviewed the property strategist and that you also interviewed, you know, psychologists, film directors, other people who may, you know, who may have been relevant to include their comments did you interview them or did you split it between the three of you we did split it um excitingly i got to um interview the um film and television producers um in <laughs> fact um my co-author ashley and i went to a conference in miami um oh. yes so we actually went about three weeks before covid hit the world wow. um so mark um well, Ashley was invited to speak at um, Kids Screen Summit, which is a industry conference for um, those in film and television. And it has representatives from Disney, um, uh, Nickelodeon, PBS, who produce Sesame Street. All of them, they're, they're doing um, various sessions and breakouts. And it's also an opportunity for people to pitch their scripts. Um, and so Ashley was invited to speak there. And... I thought it would be a great opportunity for us to, well, actually for me to have a holiday, but also <laughs> uh, for for us to um, set up some interviews. Um, and because it's a networking conference, people were um, really forthcoming when it came to um, spending 20 minutes with us as we asked them about their insight when it came to the future of, of children's entertainment. So we spoke with... Um, a, the head of development for Mattel, and Mattel mm. are, are most well-known for um, manufacturing Barbie. Mm. Um, we spoke with a um, the executive for children's film and television for Hello Sunshine, which is Reese Witherspoon's production company, mm -hmm. um, and then various others. So, um, yeah, I had, I had the fortune of, of conducting those ones, but what we did is each of us, um, we did a command and conquer kind of situation mm. and, um, the interviews were recorded and, um, then they were sent to me. Um, and I kind of pulled out, um, what I thought was most appropriate and, mm. and did placeholders throughout each of the chapters, uh, for those. Great. Now, you said that you, 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 the three of you thought about it. I mean, uh, thought about the the logical order in which to tell um, this story, and then you kind of thought, okay, well, it'd be good to include interview this kind of person, this kind of person, this kind of person. Were Ashley and Mark already thinking that they needed to supplement the book with interviews, or were they thinking they were going to download their IP? 
Um, if I recall, I think I very early on said it would be great to get lots of different voices. Yes. Um, and because Mark had actually, um, he had written some other books which were more academic in style. Um, I said, by bringing me on, like my, what I'm passionate about is storytelling. Yes. And one of the best ways we can do that is if we actually get some anecdotal things. Um, and that, and I, I think, um, I recall emphasizing that's the point of connection for the reader. Um, it's when they can see themselves within, um, any given experience that's being explained. And, and so early on, we actually, we did focus groups with, um, Gen Alpha kids and Gen Alpha parents. Um, and then we moved into the interviews as well. So I think that they could see that it would add richness to it. Mm. Um, and, and, and introduce a lot more connection points because, um, let's be honest, um, statistics are boring, um, <laughs> but they do tell a story and, and really, and that's what I was there to do was to help tell the story of the statistics. Mm -mm. I mean, I read countless nonfiction books about specific topics that, I mean, I read memoir as well, but, uh, but, you know, books like this and so this is already head and shoulders above many because so many only download the IP of the individual and at, at most if they cite other people they cite them from you know bo books that those other people have written so the fact that you've gone to this effort to really make it far more comprehensive and have all of these other voices is fantastic and you know kudos to you for recognizing that at the start now, you, you mentioned it was like a jigsaw and I could I just think of the research and the interviews and the pieces of paper <laughs> involved in this in putting this book together and it I feel a little bit nauseous. <laughs> 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 what did you do on a practical level to um, wrangle everything and to keep everything in order, all of your bits and pieces of information and, and MP3s and, and research papers and, and everything. Well, first of all, I just like to apologize because I think I contributed to global warming because of the <laughs> amount of paper I used. Um, I took a photo of this huge pile and it must've been 1500 pages front and back of various mm. reports that I'd printed off and read and highlighted. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, I mean, really practically what I did is I, I broke each chapter down, um, had its own folder and then it had subtopics in each folder. Um, and I just tried to, again, looked at the logical. But hang on, you mean a, a folder on your computer? Yeah, on my computer. Oh uh -huh, gosh. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I did print off a lot, but, um, yeah, no. So I had it on my computer, broke mm -hmm. down all, it, it, all into subtopics and then I would actually, um, I have a thinking chair in my office. What's and that? <laughs> so it literally is what it says on the tin. So there are times <laughs> where it can be really overwhelming, the amount of information that I had at hand. Mm. And I would I would actually just have to stop myself when I was feeling overwhelmed and sit in my thinking chair. And I picked this up. I think it was from James Patterson, um, the prolific um, author. Yeah. He said whenever he writes something, he thinks of one individual and he writes to that person. Oh, yes. And so I decided that that one person was going to be my mum. Oh. And I started to think because she's very black and white and um doesn't like frills so she's like get straight to the point I want to understand mm. 
And so the whole time I was seeing her as I was writing this, I was thinking, does this make, would this make sense to my mum? Like, is this in um, simple enough terms that she can hold on to it and then be able to explain it back to me? Um, and that was actually really grounding because um, it helped me uh, clarify the research for myself in such a way that I could articulate it to someone else who has never been exposed to the world of social research. So that that was one nifty little trick that has served me really well. And um, I actually got a message from her two days ago saying, I've just finished reading the book. It was so easy to understand. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow. Like, I really, like, I nailed it. But yes. I didn't realize how um, important it was to kind of pair it back and not get lost in academia and the, yes. and the social research language. Um, and my mum didn't know this, but she was a part of the solution. Fantastic. Um, so it's got three names on the cover, Mark McCrindle, Ashley Fell, Sam Buckerfield. Now... <laughs> Was it a case of Mark and Ashley providing essentially the ingredients and you baking the cake or, or did you kind of bake three cakes each? Like you do this chapter, you do this chapter, you do this chapter. How did that work? It was a bit of both, to be honest. Um, so I started off on the project on my own um, doing the interviews with Mark and then doing the desktop research. So like I said, I had to immerse myself in this. I had to get my head around all of these topics mm. for myself in order to be able to communicate them to someone like my mum. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a good 10 or 11 months. Um, and then they were starting to do more research on Gen Alpha because these are, these are still really young kids. There's not much out there. Mm. Um, and they added that. Um, and I think that's around the time that I recommended the various interviews that we did. So it was very much a team effort. And I would say the chapter on wellbeing, um, was heavily influenced, um, by Mark and Ashley because they actually published a book on work wellbeing. Mm -hmm. And they'd done a tremendous amount of research on that and had done um, quite a few surveys uh, for people at the workplace um, and and speaking with psychologists as well. So mm -hmm. I, I actually kind of I kind of uh, did a bit of a hospital pass to them on that one because they had mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it was quite very. And then there was there's some content like a, a lot of the introduction is um, content that they use in their presentations. So they're both itinerant speakers and they go around um, the country and, and, and the world as well, um, presenting on various um, uh, topics. And so they had things that we just kind of massaged into the manuscript. So I feel like very much a team effort when we look back we've all played a significant part. Um, I, and I think at, at the start, it was me really on my own. Uh, mm. And that's when I was getting a bit scared <laughs> and overwhelmed. <laughs> um, but then we had conversations to, um, you know, to bring some more resource in so that I wasn't my biggest concern, I would say, I didn't want to fake it. I didn't want to like, um, think I, I knew what I was doing. And, mm. um, when really I wasn't. And so we had a few conversations where I was like, you're, you're the experts and I, I'm here to make you look good. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, uh, yeah, it was just it was really down to communication and making sure we were on the same page. And and I was very quick to put my hand up when I said, I don't know enough about this topic. and I'm finding it difficult to get my head around it. So it really was a, a, a team effort. Can you give us an idea of the timeline from, you know, like um, the first meeting when you decided to go for it, when the meetings started, the writing period up to publication? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I thought, optimistic Sam, uh, thought it was going to take nine months to do. So, um, but it's actually taken uh, two years and two months. Wow. So I was way off. Okay. <laughs> so the first meeting happened in February um, 2019. Uh, and that's really where Mark sort of pitched the idea to me. And I went away for a week or two. I read um, some of his previous books and then came back with a bunch of questions and reiterated the fact that I wasn't an academic writer. Yeah. Um, and from then, um, I actually had a writing agreement that um, that I put together and, and um, so that there was an understanding that I was actually managing their IP. Yeah. Um, and we actually didn't have a timeline on that because I was so vague, but in my head I had an, I had nine months. Mm-hmm. Um, but as um, Mark was incredibly busy, um, we only managed to do these three-hour interviews once every three weeks, mm-hmm. and I was juggling a, um, a four-day-a-week job at the same time. Um, so it was about... It was nine months where I probably wrote around 65,000 based on all the desktop research I'd done and the, and the interviews with Mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was at the end of 2019 that we got together. And the whole time, I will say this, um, I felt very early on, number one, that this was an important book and it was something I wanted to be a part of. Number two, that actually this was a book that had a global reach. Yeah. Um, and there was talk of, of of using a local publisher, and I'm nothing against that. Um, but I just kept saying, I think there's a bigger market for this. And actually, if we get to influence the narrative mm. of the future generation, why not go big with this? Mm. And it was in December of 2019 that um, Mark sort of saw that as well. And at that point, um, I said to him, well, why don't I reach out to contacts um, that I have in the industry who have come from Australian Writers' Centre and see what they recommend we we do as next steps. And it actually ended up being quite a cool story. So I got in in touch with um, Pamela Freeman, who I'd um, done a few courses with in person, and she was very encouraging to me. And we've re- we remained in touch after I finished courses. Mm-hmm. And she said that there were two publishers based in Sydney that had a global reach. One was Curtis Brown and the other was Hachette. Mm-hmm. And um, so I mentioned this to Mark and Mark said, oh, we've done stuff with Hachette before. Um, do you think I should be so bold as to approach them and see if they would publish our book? Mm-hmm. And of course, my response was always be bold, always be bold. (laughs) (laughs) And and so he actually reached out. He was given a business card. It was three years ago. They did some staff training with them. And the CEO at the time had said, you know, if you're publishing anything, let us know. We want to get Australian authors out there. Um, So Mark reached out. He got um, his email bounced back. Turns out that the CEO had actually left and moved on. 
But the person who had replaced him was the individual that hosted Mark the entire day that he was doing the staff training. Mm -hmm. So Mark had a better connection with with that person. And so from then it was so that that was a year after I started. So this was this was February 2020. This was two weeks before Ashley and I were due to go to Miami for the conference. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I left a little bit earlier, but the day before I flew out, um, Mark uh, was invited to to go to the head office of Hachette in Sydney and meet with a few people there. And I like that as, as someone who's done lots and lots of research into what the experience of publishers is like. I knew it was significant that he was invited into the office and with with 36 mm. hours notice. Mm. So I was like, we're, we're onto something here. This is really exciting. Mm. And then within um, six weeks, we had an offer um, and had to we had to provide the first three chapters, um, the outline. Um, and then after that, we had it was sort of from March, April. It went very quiet, and I got a little bit nervous. <laughs> um, but that's because the team at Hachette were actually negotiating um, uh, other territories. So um, they managed, yeah, they managed to secure the UK. And actually, I just got given the UK version this week. Um, nice. And and UK, it's actually UK, Europe, and India. I think that's brilliant. Uh, which is so exciting. And um, they've started new negotiations recently for the Americas. Fantastic. So, yeah, it's been it's been extraordinary. And once we signed the contract, we had about four months to finish off the writing. And then we went into structural edit um, and then the, um, the copy edit um, and then lots and lots of proofreads. So I... I finished um, November 2020. Um, Ashley kind of took the baton and they'd done some more recent research. And so she added and finessed and made it sound a bit more like McCrindle. Mm. Um, and then I got the proofreads January and February 2021. And um, it was on shelves the 27th of April. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, just to clarify, when you had the meeting with or when Mark had the meeting with Hachette, when Hachette started being interested, at what point was the manuscript, where was the manuscript at? Like how much had been written and what had, how much did they read in order to make their decision? Well, um, we had, it was 65 to 75,000 words were written. And quite a comprehensive outline, like book outline, um, pages and pages, actually. Um, So they could, I think, one of the things that tipped, um, well, first of all, um, Fiona, who we work with at Hachette, she has Generation Alpha children. So Mm -hmm. she was naturally interested, which was really cool. So she was fascinated by all of the the research that we were presenting. And then... um, after that, it was that we had done a lot of the work. Um, and so the proof was literally in the pudding there um, that we weren't going to just pump something out, um, that actually it was going to be comprehensive. It was going to be robust. And we, we there's something like at the back of the book, you'll see there's something like 370 citations, mm. all these references 
Um, so I think that really that really showed that we were serious, that we were taking the book seriously, um, and that and that we were were had already done a lot of the work. So I think they only it was three months we got to 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 finish off the the manuscript, mm. and I was just like, thank goodness we've done the amount of work we have. Um, because there's no way I could have, like, I could have no. pumped this out and none of us as well. So, yeah. So you had done an incredible amount of work before you started talking to Hachette. If Hachette didn't come along, I mean, if Hachette was out of the <laughs> picture, what was the intention? What was the intention of the three of you? Because you had been doing all this work with the expectation of what? Well, I, I, I'm go big or go home kind of guy. So I, I just, I actually had this kind of inner conviction that it was going to get a big publisher because wow. one of the things actually um, that I haven't mentioned is that they, um, Mark, yeah, not only did he come up with the label, the, the term Generation Alpha, but actually um, he's been cited by the New York Times, by Huffington Post, um, you know, the Washington Post. So he is internationally recognized as the person who came up with this term. So I knew there was already interest and he was uh, receiving credit for it. Um, so I knew there was something here and I didn't know how it was all going to unfold. And they had relationship with smaller publishers, like I mentioned. So I knew it was going to get published full stop. Right. But... I, like I said, I kind of had this burning conviction that, um, we could go for broke and, 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 and go for the heavy hitters as I kept calling them at the time. Mm. Yeah. So now you've done all this while you've had a day job. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, uh, like, is it four days a week and tell me what it is that you do in your day job? So I'm the um, general manager for corporate communications for a not-for-profit and basically, I oversee virtually every word that um, is bandied around staff and uh, on marketing collateral um, and really oversee the messaging uh, of a lot of what we do. Um, and I'm now I'm now actually doing that five days a week. But while oh I was working goodness. with with McCrindle, it was it was uh, four days. There was a stint before I got this job of about three months where um, I was full time on on the McCrindle job. But um, yeah, the bulk of it. Look, I had to have quite a few writing retreats, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so but the, while you, you were working your day job, when did you fit it in? How did you structure your week so that you got stuff done? Um, so I broke down two topics. Okay. I, uh, there's a couple of things I do. Um, I look at my, I map my energy for the week. Oh. I know that sounds a bit woo woo, you know, mm. but I know I'm most productive first thing in the morning. I actually did this online assessment where I found out that between 6am and 11am is when I'm like prime, prime mind. Um, and so there were times, and so that's when I need to be writing. Now it's afternoons is when I research because you can be a bit more, you know, um, chill about that. Whereas in the morning I need to get stuff done. I just have to pump it out. So there was a mixture of things I would do. Um, I do early morning, sometimes get up at half past five and, and do maybe two hours before work. Um, and 
then we'd have ideas on the train and and write notes and i use um uh like the google cloud drive and so i could access everything wherever i was and thank god for that technology it's <laughs> helped me no end and then um you know, I wouldn't do anything on Fridays, for example, because I just didn't have the energy. Um, and so I'd do something for myself. I'd, I'd make sure I'd get in nature. Um, I'd break things up with walks. Um, and then on weekends, I, I set myself quite a few deadlines and they were just personal deadlines. Um, and so we'd work quite a bit on weekends. And then if there was something huge that was hard for me um there were some topics that I really struggled to, to get my head around and just required lots of research. And that's when I knew I could save that for a retreat. And that would be a long weekend um, doing like 16 hour days of research and writing and just trying to like grapple with these ideas and simplify them. Mm -hmm. So it was quite a um, mixed approach. And I'm really big on on listening to my body and listening to my mind and not pushing through because then you make silly mistakes and actually you feel worse for yourself. And the next day you're annoyed at yourself. So I try, I try to be as kind to myself as possible in the process while, whilst being as productive as I could as well. Mm. Now you've said that your passion is fiction, although clearly you're passionate about this topic. Um, but how have you, what's happened to your fiction while you were writing and being consumed by this? Well, I couldn't stop writing fiction. So, really? Um, That's great. Yeah. I, so really? actually, I went away, um, oh, it was a year ago, actually. Some photos popped up, my, up on my phone to remind me that it was a year ago. Um, I'd been chatting with a friend about this idea I'd had, and I felt something brewing. Um, and so I went away uh, for a week um, to the Southern Highlands and stayed like in a farm in a farm in the middle of a farm mm -hmm. and no distractions rubbish internet and <laughs> this this story kind of came to me while I was there and but I've why been... did you go away like if you because hadn't already had a story you wanted to brew <laughs> it well because something I felt something was coming and oh, I needed I see. yeah so it's kind of like I can see a wave coming in the distance mm. and I know I'm going to need to catch it at some point, but I kind of have to tell the idea to just like, just hang on a second. Oh <laughs> can God. you just wait for me? Um, and so knowing that in a few weeks time, I was going to be going away for a week. I just let, I let the ideas kind of go around my head. And then um, it was about four days into my break that I started to see all of these scenes and characters and the wave wow. was crashing like big time. And, and while I was there, I think, I think it was about, I wrote about 10,000 words across oh three days and then have been developing that since. Um, and really, you know, I'm hopeful that either through the relationship that I've established with Hachette, that it might lead to something, uh, mm. uh being published with them or, um, or I, I am looking at self-publishing as well because this story is really in my bones and I really want to get it out there. So, yeah, I can't, I can't help myself. Wow. I really can't. So can you tell us the genre or, or anything about it? Yeah, sure. It's, um, so it's middle grade um, oh. and it's adventure, uh, adventure fantasy. Um, yeah, I grew up um, 
being read bedtime stories like The Lion, Witch and Wardrobe from Chronicles of Narnia. And um, that actually had a profound impact on me in terms of sparking my imagination. And really, it's from then that I love story and love fantasy. And so it's kind of got that flavor to it, going into other worlds, um, good versus evil. But it's been heavily influenced by the research I've done with McCrindle. And so there's a lot about um, about empathy um, and emotions and managing emotions. Um, and the lead characters are, are 10 years old and they've been through some serious trauma, but they're going on these adventures. And so there's a lot of messaging about forgiveness and grief, managing loss and sadness, um, but also um, what um, what it is to hope again in the in the midst of grief and loss. So, yeah, it's been it's been a ride, I tell you. Now, I want to come back to, now I don't mean to harp on it, but I think it's so important because so many people say they don't have the time. You've, got a, you've had a full-time job. You've written this nonfiction book, a lot of it in, say, two hours in the morning and certain parts of the weekend, took Fridays off. When did you, and, but you have not stopped writing fiction. When did you fit your fiction in? How did you, did you allocate certain times of day for the different projects? Yeah, I did with, with fiction. Okay. I mean, this was, I would say this was where I felt compelled to write. So I would wake up in the morning and there would be, there would be a new idea and I just had to get on my laptop. So, and this has been burning in me for a year. Um, and so, I mean, look, I'm not married with children. And so I don't have um, those other distractions. And I think, like, quite frankly, that's that's actually afforded me lots of time to be able to do this. Um, but, you know, I go hiking a fair amount. And that's when a lot of the ideas come like being in nature. And I'll write, I'll write an outline on my phone. And then by the time I get home, it's all it like I'm hot and ready to go, you know. Mm-hmm. So I I I've, I've found time. I made time. Um, I felt compelled to use whatever time I had. So it wasn't it wasn't like I timetabled everything. Mm-hmm. I was listening to the ideas and, and like I said, kind of my energy around it yeah. and, and riding the wave as it as it came. Yeah. Mm. Um, now, you've done um, uh, several courses at the Australian Writers' Centre. What has been the most beneficial thing that you've gotten out of those experiences? I think it was actually um, exposure to the industry. So you have industry professionals who are teaching, who've who've lived through what it is to write and to publish a book, um, and they are experts. And having them come alongside me, so for me personally, it actually, they were um, imparting passion and they were instilling confidence because I knew like from a skill point of view, we can all learn, you know, new mm. things, but then there's the belief in yourself. And I think um, in, in the creative industries, um, self-sabotage is a real thing and it, it prevents people from moving forward. Oh, yeah. um, and I've, I've sat in that a few times and I was very close to not finishing um, a weekend course of all things um, mm-hmm. because I didn't get very clear feedback, mm-hmm. but um, I didn't quite realize that um, the, our, our teacher was using wisdom and not um, bowling me over with with all of her thoughts. Um, 
And it, it was actually after the course that she pulled me aside and said, hey, there's something here. There's something here. Let's explore it a bit more. So it really, it was it was the wisdom that comes from having lived it out um, and and the um, the passion and, and the confidence that was all instilled in, in me. And you can't, and, and that's why I would actually recommend doing the courses in person. Um, like I've done lots of online and they've been awesome. But when you feel someone's energy, when you feel the excitement um, of someone having a light bulb moment with a story and seeing the the connection and um, that actually adds a little bit of fuel to your fire. Mm. So, yeah, those were the things that had quite a profound impact on me. And and genuinely, um, I, I certainly wouldn't have had the confidence to embark on this Generation Alpha journey had I not done these courses and and been instilled with that confidence. So it's a credit to you and the team. Um, yes, I've had to do the work, but you need cheerleaders along the way and 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 the team there certainly have been to me well you are certainly well on your way so what finally what are your top three tips for aspiring writers who want to be in a position where you are one day okay number one is show up Mm. there's um an amazing um ted talk that elizabeth gilbert does on the elusive creative genius Mm -hmm. and she talks about how um ideas come at you kind of like I've mentioned but you have to be present for them so you you have to show up and have your mind switched on and like I said you know I can see an idea coming and I'm I'm already letting it kind of ruminate um so you've got to show up and and be aware um of of your creativity Mm. um I would say number two is do the work Mm. oh my gosh it's actually a really boring gig sometimes (laughs) and it's it feels like work. And I think because, you know, I'm, you know, a fiction writer and I was writing nonfiction. Um, so there are times where it feels like work, but if you don't do the writing, there's nothing to read. Um, yeah. and if, if you don't do the research, it doesn't validate, um, what's being said. So you have to do the work and there's long hours and it, and it is difficult. Um, but it is worthwhile. When I, when I was given the book, um, for the first time, I was shaking and I could, I could not believe my response. Mm. Um, and it really, because it had been intangible for almost two years, you know, it was just words on a screen. And then all of a sudden I'm holding it and then I'm seeing it in Dimmocks and friends are sending me photos, you know, got someone sent me something from Katoomba and (laughs) my aunt in Invercargill in the um, South Island of New Zealand Mm. bugged her local library to get the book into the library there. Um, and now she's checked it out. So, um, that's what comes from doing the work. And I think number three, I'd steal from Winston Churchill, and that's never, never, never give up. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Well, congratulations. I'm sure this is going to be the first of many. And Generation Alpha, I mean, already in Australia, UK, Europe, India, soon to be US, it's no doubt, as you say, you felt that there was something big here and I have no doubt it's going to be huge globally. So congratulations on being involved in something so mammoth. Thank you so much for your time today, Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. 
There we go. How amazing that Sam writes both fiction and nonfiction at the same time. He really shows that you can, like Alison says, write all the things. <laughs> Generation Alpha by Sam Buckerfield, Mark McCrindle and Ashley Fell is out now with Hachette Australia. So whether you're keen to write fiction or nonfiction, Creative Writing Stage 1 at the Australian Writer Centre is a great place to start as it introduces you to the essentials of storytelling. And that's what Astrid Schultz found after taking the course before going on to publish her award-winning young adult novel. Have a listen to Astrid's story. I'd always loved writing, but it had taken a bit of a backseat while I was working in film and pursuing my career. And I tried a few times to, to write a different story, but I usually would get stuck around 20 to 25,000 words. And I didn't know or have the tools to kind of continue with that process to see the manuscript through. So that's what really led me to looking at a course to push through to the end. So the first course that I signed up was for creative writing stage one. It was just a great starting point of Acknowledging that this was something I wanted to take seriously, it was something that I was investing my time into. The things I found most useful about Creative Writing One was actually being in a classroom environment with other people who had the same desires and aspirations to be published as I did. So it also gave me a wonderful network. It was just this really wonderful time where you know you set aside certain hours a week and you would go into this very supportive environment and learn about something that you're extremely passionate about. So you get to keep that community alive through the Facebook groups to have to support you through your writing career. I enrolled in several courses at the Australian Writers' Centre and each one gave me some sort of knowledge or skill or advice that I didn't know about whatever the topic was, whether it was creative writing in general, how to write a novel, how to write history, mystery or magic. And it really kind of gave me this general understanding and base for going out into the world with my manuscripts and hoping to get published. I did envision myself being a published author ever since I was a young kid. And I'm so excited to say that I am a published author. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>